I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer, historian, and today we have a very special fight to discuss with you. One of my most uh, favorite fights, most, and it's an exciting fight, and one of my favorite fighters in the planet, Archie Moore. It's the December 10th, 1958, historic fight for the World Light Heavyweight title held by H. and Archie Moore, the old mongoose, and he was challenged by the fighting fisherman from Bay St. Como, New Brunswick, out in the Maritimes, Canada's Yvonne Durrell. Uh, Durrell was a prohibitive four-to-one underdog. Moore was in his 40s by then, and uh, most people didn't think Durrell would last that long, but there was really no indication in his career prior to that to come up with a statement that he wouldn't last that long. It just didn't make any sense. It's the same as when Shivalo fought Ali for the first time, and they said Ali would knock him out early. Well, George had never been knocked down or hurt, so why would he have been knocked out early? Uh, Yvonne Durrell started his career uh, in in the Maritimes, Canadian Maritime. He was a fisherman, like his um, rest of his family, and then he took up boxing at a young age. Actually, probably his biggest fight prior to Durrell, other than winning the British Commonwealth Light Heavyweight title, was he fought a young uh, Floyd Patterson in New York. It's an interesting story because if you read the book by the late uh, um, uh, uh, author Stratton, I believe his last name was, um, and family members watching, please forgive me. He wrote a great book on Floyd Patterson. It only came out several years ago. And he mentioned that there were two fighters, both Canadians, that soundly beat Patterson but because of the fight being held in New York where Patterson was from, didn't get the decision. And the first fighter was Yvonne Durrell. The other one was Chevallo, of course. But Durrell fought him. And when Durrell came to New York to fight him, uh, the promoters for the fight at Madison Square Garden, they didn't do him any favors. So Durrell and his handlers didn't know anything at that point. So they didn't know that they were going to be given a hotel room, that they had a food budget. So Durrell just would eat a grilled cheese sandwich in his room, and that would hold him for two or three days. He was starving, but he didn't know that there's a food budget. There's food here. There's money here where you can go out and buy really good meals. No one told him that. They weren't there to help him. And it was an eight-round fight, you know, in New York, where you have a former Olympian, Floyd Patterson, and Gold Gloves champion and Floyd Patterson, a New York fighter fighting in New York in front of New York fight fans and New York judges and a New York ref. And really, Durrell beat him up. He pounded him from pillar to post. He won the fight, but uh, the fight was given to... Uh, Patterson, not the first time Patterson got a gift, and uh, the people in the newspapers, of course, not in the Canadian newspapers. The Canadian newspapers, as usual, would waste no time in bad-mouthing one of their own, uh, but, uh, you know, they said Durrell lost as expected, but Durrell actually beat Patterson, and even Patterson's biographers, I just mentioned, noted that, that this, you know, he came out on top in this fight, but he got screwed. That's boxing politics. Uh, Durrell was, as I said, from Bay St. Como, and Durrell, uh, I'm just looking for the date he was born. He was born October 14th, 1929, um, which is interesting because that means he was born about 16 days before my father was born. Uh, he came from a large family. He, he had 14 children, so he had 13 siblings. If you can imagine, that'd be called a small family back then in the Maritimes. I uh, grew up in a small Acadian fishing village. Acadia, Acadians were really the first people, uh, amongst the first people to settle 
after the First Nations in Canada. So when you hear folk music in Canada and other places from Canada, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, Neil Young, and, and Joni Mitchell, a lot of their background is Acadian music, which was really the original music of of, uh, of Canada. And like many others, you know, in his generation, Durrell came from an impoverished family, born in the height of the Great Depression. So he quit school early and and um, was basically a functional illiterate and got work in uh, a fishing village. But he liked to box. And he started to box on weekends along with his brother, Ernie, who also boxed professionally. And of course, coming from a fishing village, uh, the perfect nickname was the Fighting Fisherman. Uh, he began his career in 1947, and he boxed in and all around the province of New Brunswick. Boxing was really hot in the Maritimes back then. It's always been a top sport in the Maritimes. Um, when you hear of great Canadian athletes, George Chevallo, George St. Pierre, Wayne Gretzky, uh, uh, another great athletes, Mike Weir, who's golfer, championship golfer. Um, very few people mention great athletes from the Maritimes. And when they talk about Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, which is, resides in Calgary, or Boxing Hall of Fame, we need a Canadian National Boxing Hall of Fame. The Maritimes could have their own Boxing Halls of Fame, our own Hockey Halls of Fame, or our own Basketball or Golf Halls of Fame, because they've produced some of the greatest athletes in the history of the planet. And uh, Yvonne Durrell certainly falls into that category. Um, he... he um, you know, in his first couple of years in the sport, I mean, this was an exuberant guy. You know, Durrell was an interesting character because when he trained, he trained on cigarettes, potato chips, and beer. And and as he said, the rest of the time I just wasted. So he got by on resilience and his phenomenal strength. I mean, he did the miles and he ran and he hit the heavy bag and he hit the speed bag, but Durrell really didn't have this the diet, the professional diet. What you see fighters today, you know, having a dietitian and looking after their diets and that and what food goes into them and what they eat, that was just that would have been considered from another world back in the 1950s, late 40s and 1950s. And um, so he fought in and around uh New Brunswick. His first fight outside of Canada was the one in Brooklyn against Foley Patterson, where he handily beat him, but didn't get the decision. And uh, in 1957, he went to New York City again, and he broke into the top 10 of the light heavyweight division of the world rankings when he defeated Angelo Defendis. And then he won the British Empire uh, light heavyweight championship, uh, which was a big deal if you're a Canadian, but it also gives you gravitas. You know, rather than saying, here's Yvonne Durrell from Bay St. Coma, New Brunswick, here is the British Commonwealth. Canadian, British, Commonwealth, light heavyweight champion. So, you know, it helps you get a bit more money. Um, he also fought one of the top-ranked contenders, if not the top-ranked contender, uh, Tony Anthony at that time in a fight. Most people thought he won easily, but then again, it was ruled a draw. So back then, you know, if you didn't have the muscle in your corner, and muscle meant, you know, if you didn't have either mob backing or people that had been in the business a long time and were legitimate enough that, the officials and the people promoting it knew they couldn't screw you, you would get screwed a lot. And that happened to him. Um, he beat uh, the German Clarence Hinnant, 
uh, another great light heavyweight, top-ranked guy. And so his career was on the way. And and that win over Hinnon uh, gave him a chance to fight the immortal Archie Moore. Archie Moore has the most knockouts in, in boxing history. We're still, on this day, September 19th, 2022, boxing historians like myself are still combing through the records of boxing going back to the 20s and I guess the, the 30s and up to look at fights of Archie Moore that were there, that happened, that we never saw the first time or that we missed. So his record can never really be complete. He started boxing at a young age. Uh, if you love characters, there was no one like Archie Moore. Archie Moore was a renaissance man. He was a jazz aficionado. He could listen to a jazz band or a jazz record and he could hear the first note. He could tell you the band and the and the musician who was playing it. Intellectually, he was a genius. He he fought a lot in South America. He fought in Europe, and he could go to to South America and Argentina, let's say, or Spain. Sit down with politicians and economists from that country, and he would know more about that country than the people who lived there did. He could sit down in the United States or any country and discuss discuss. Uh, uh, how trade tariffs affected the United States, global pricing corridors. He could he could discuss anything economically. He could discuss literature. And he, it wasn't a put-on. He was extremely smart and extremely well-read. And he knew how the boxing business was. The problem for Archie Moore was he was so good so soon. You know, he started in 36, but by the time the 1940s rolled around, the mid-40s, he was already probably the best light heavyweight in the world. In fact, you know, he was ranked as in the top, 10 for middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight. And I don't think that's, you know, it's been a long time since that's been done, if, if it ever has been done again. Now, there's a lot of great things about um, stories about his birth. So he was born Archibald Lee Wright in Benoit, Mississippi. His parents were Thomas and Lenora Wright, and they separated. He was just 18 months old. So he went to live in St. Louis with his uh, aunt and uncle, Cleveland and Willie Perlmore, and then he adopted their name. So uh, he was his real birthday has always been, you know, speculation was 1917, November 13th, according to the census of the American government. Now, he always claimed he was born December 13th, 1916. His mother said he was born December 13th, 1913, and Moore had the best comment. It was hysterical. He said, you know, I've given this issue a lot of thought, and I decided that I must have been three and a half years old when I was born. So his real birth date is 1917. And that's what the census says. Uh, as of today, we're still, as I said, going over his fights. We're still looking for fights that we missed. One of his first fights was a three-round exhibition against a guy named Sammy Jackson. That was one that was discovered recently, December 8th, 1936. And he was 19 years old. That was in St. Louis. And also, uh, he fought this guy several more times, winning two more decisions against him. And he, although he had already fought professionally by then, he also boxed as an amateur in St. Louis between February and June of 1936. Amateurs back then were paid under the table. He just wanted experience and to get better. Uh, as I said, uh, Ring Magazine rated him as the best, one of the top middleweights in 1942, one of the top light heavyweights in 1950. And one of the top heavyweights in 1955 when he fought um, uh, the impregnable, the indomitable Rocky Marciano.
Now, one of the things about Archie Moore, um, he was a gentleman, uh, and we know how Muhammad Ali used his personality and his charisma to build up the gate. Archie Moore was doing that years before Muhammad Ali was born. Archie Moore knew how to build the gate up. He knew how to get press. He knew how to rile the, the, the opposition so they would respond, and he knew how to bring the fans in. And the sad thing about Archie Moore, of course, is he didn't get a title shot uh, until 1952, and he probably should have had one 10 years earlier at least. Why didn't he get one when he was ready in his 20s? Well, there's several reasons. One is because of the vicious anti-black racism that was involved in professional boxing then. There were a lot of great black fighters. There was, there was the black murderers role, um, row, pardon me, you know, with Holman Williams and Charlie Burley and other great fighters, Jack Chase. So there, I mean, there were so many great fighters back then who didn't, who didn't, Holman Williams, who didn't get the due that they, they earned because of the color of their skin. They just weren't given title shots because the champions back then, white or black, were afraid to fight them. And the other reason why Moore didn't get ahead quicker is because of the mafia. The mob wanted him to do business. You, you know, you're a black man, so you have to agree to lose purposely to white fighters that aren't one-tenth as good as you. And Moore said, I'm not doing that. You know, my, I'm winning already beating the best, and I can't get a break. How does losing to a guy who's not good benefit me? It doesn't. benefits the mob in betting, and a betting coup doesn't benefit Archie Moore, so he refused to do it. So he kept having to beat and fight other guys. He fought Ezra Charles quite a bit. And Ezra Charles somehow could beat him and knock him out. Moore destroyed and dominated so many great fighters, but he always had trouble with Ezra Charles. People call Ezra Charles maybe the best light heavyweight ever, but he never, he only fought as a light heavyweight for a short time, never held the title. If you ask me who the best light heavyweight fighter of all time was, it would have to be Archie Moore because he ranks as one of the greatest fighters pound for pound in any division and one of the greatest athletes ever to have lived. Two best light heavyweight champions in my mind ever were Archie Moore and Bob Foster. And Foster could hit like a brick wall. When he hit you with one shot, you know, you were done. Not only in that fight, but career-wise, you were pretty well done. So Moore had to wait such a long time to get his title shot at, at uh, Joey Maxim. The interesting thing about Maxim, of course, Maxim wasn't was not really charismatic. He wasn't a specially gifted fighter, but he won. He was tall. He held a knockout win over Floyd Patterson. He, he Patterson started at light heavyweight and then moved up. But Maxim was technically skilled, but he had an ace in the hole, Jack Kearns. Jack Doc Kearns also managed Jack Dempsey to the world heavyweight title and Mickey Walker to the, the middleweight and world light heavyweight titles. Kearns knew how boxing worked. He knew how to get around the mob, and he also knew how to work with the mob without it adversely affecting him or his fighters. So in those days, if Moore wants to fight Joey Maxim, and, and Moore had this tremendous publicity campaign where he got Ring Magazine and newspapers in every city in the United States saying, you know, you got to give this guy a chance. He's the number one rated light heavyweight for how many years now? And you guys are ducking him. So this is what Curran said. We'll fight you. You'll get your shot, but you have to agree to a rematch and then a third match. Rematch is understandable. That's commonplace in boxing going back 300 years. 
A third match is unheard of. Um, a third match, I think, was because Kearns had to know deep in his heart that Moore was the much better fighter. And also, the other part of the contract was, was that Jack Dob Kearns owns a piece of Archie Moore. Now, you would think most fighters would say, get lost. I'm not, I've worked this hard for this long. I'm not giving you a piece of myself or my career earnings. But Moore didn't look at it that way. The way Moore looked at it, and he was correct, he said, I have had nothing but low-life managers for my whole career. He was managing himself at this point. Every manager I've had has worked against me along with the promoter and my opponent to, to rip me off of money, to try to get the judges to vote against me. Kearns is the greatest manager in the history of the sport. Having him in my corner after I win is only going to help me my career. So they have their first fight, and of course, more wins by a wide, unanimous decision. And, you know, he's he, he, he people were celebrating in his corner, but he wouldn't. He told them to shut up, stop jumping up, stop yelling, stop pumping your fist. This should have happened 10 years ago. This is 10 years too late. So, you know, this is something that's always belonged to me. So he fights Maxim again a short time later, beats him again easily and then they have the third fight i mean he's got to fight him three times before they finally let go and say okay okay it's your title you can do what you want and he fights third time and he beats maxim easily again and he gets jack Doc kearns who was his manager who eventually moved into his house to live with him kearns was a a rogue a scambuga he he you know never had money was always drinking and betting but he he and losing his money gambling but he knew boxing and he knew how to match, match his fighter up, and he knew how to help his fighter win. And so once he got Kearns on his side, Moore's purses started to go up, and he started to get a better quality of opponents all the time. And he started to hang on to his money. He didn't have to worry about the opposing manager or the promoter ripping him off because of Doc Kearns. That wouldn't happen. Kearns had been in the sport by that time, you know, almost 50 years. So no one was going to pull a fast one over Jack Doc Kearns. Moore got everything that was coming to him. And when I mean say that, I mean Jack Duck Kearns was more not only gets the fee that he was promised, but he gets part of the gate. He gets part of the tele television revenue. He gets a piece of all the programs sold. He gets a piece of all the pennants sold, all the buttons sold, photographs with of Archie Moore. He gets a piece of that. He made sure Archie Moore got money from everything that he was involved with. And that had never happened before between Archie Moore and any of his previous managers, and rarely happened between a great black fighter and a white manager. But Kearns, you know, that's the way he was. And I, I also wonder if Jack Duck Kearns, if it had something to do with the Canadian Larry Gaines, because Larry Gaines was a great heavyweight in the 20s. He went to spar with Dempsey, destroyed Dempsey's brandly new, reshaped, medically reshaped nose, gave Dempsey a hiding over a week or two. And he had to, Kearns let him go. And he said, Larry, you're a great man. And I'm sure if I managed you, you'd be the world champion instead of Jack. But the way the sport is now, they're just not going to allow another black man to be champion after Jack Johnson. So Gaines had to go become empire champion, Commonwealth champion over in, in Britain. And there was that always bothered Kearns. And so because of that, Kearns, I'm not saying he was a moral man. He wasn't. I mean, there was supposed to be a fight between Harry Wills and Jack Dempsey, and that never happened. That was partly because of Kearns. But... Finding Jack Doc Kearns for, as his manager was the best thing to happen to Archie Moore. And because of uh, Durrell's wins over the German fighter, um, 
he got to challenge Archie Moore uh, for the light heavyweight title. The fight was in um, uh, Montreal form. 8,000 people uh, came to the fight. And um, it's interesting when you note it that uh, the gate was maybe $90,000. Um, the referee was Jack Sharkey, and he got blamed a lot for this fight. This was this was one of the first, not one of the first, but re really big, important title fights that the former world heavyweight champion Jack Sharkey had refereed. Sharkey was an interesting person. Sharkey had been forced to lose his world title to the inept Primo Carnera. He always claimed the fight was on the level, but a couple of weeks before he died, he said the fight wasn't on the level. The mob forced me at gunpoint to lose. And I can only say it now because I'm going to be dead within a month and everyone who was involved is gone. And so this was part of the pernicious hold that the mob held over, over um, boxing. Um, so the fight was at the Montreal Forum, December 10th. And people are watching the fight and they're thinking, well, you know, Durrell, Durrell's going to come out and just go wild. And Moore's going to stand back and easily, easily pick him apart. But that's not what happened. Uh, there were four knockdowns in the fight. And early in the fight, you know, Moore is able, or Durrell was able to work his way inside and catch Archie Moore, who was in his middle to late 40s now with a tremendous right hand, and Moore hits the canvas. People can't believe it. The forum in Montreal was going crazy, and Durrell made a fatal mistake. Instead of turning and running back to his corner, he stood there over Moore waiting for him to get up. There was no reason for it because that kind of action had disappeared from boxing for many years. Every fighter knew. Even people that weren't fight fans knew. You knock a guy down, you got to go to the farthest neutral corner. When Matthew Hilton beat Buster Drayton for the junior middleweight world title in Montreal, when he dropped him in the first round of that booming right hand, he turned on a dime and ran to the corner, at which point Jim Lampley said, this is a well-schooled fighter. Durrell wasn't a well-schooled fighter, you know, so Durrell knocked him down, and Archie Moore is hurt. He, he, it wasn't a flash knockdown. He got caught right on the button. He's concussed. You know, his, his brain is foggy. He's dizzy. He's nauseous. He manages to make it to one knee at seven, and he gets up, and he's clinching, and he's clinching. He's doing everything he can. This is only 20, 30 seconds into the round. It's got a lot of time to go yet. And then Durrell does a smart thing. He jabs him, moves back a bit to give himself punching room, lands another right hand, and Moore goes down again. And now Montreal Forum is going berserk. They can't believe this. They're going to have a French-Canadian light heavyweight champion of the world, although, although it happened once before with Jack Delaney. But this would be the second one. And they couldn't believe it. He's going to be the world champion. And he goes to the corner, and people blamed Jack Sharkey, they said he was counting, his counts were too long. Well, the first time he went down, he couldn't start counting until Durrell went to the neutral corner. That's just a rule. Second time, he was accused of going one, two, and, and so on. But I watched the fight. I didn't see it as a slow count. He's giving the champion a count. He's trying to make sure Moore sees and understands what's going on. You've got to make sure Durrell stays in the corner. Somehow. Somehow Moore staggers to his feet. But, you know, Durrell just goes wild and starts throwing punches willy-nilly. Throwing punches out the window, as the great trainer Charlie Goldman said. 
instead of calming down and doing the smart thing, which James Tony would do and always did was when you got a guy hurt like that, you attack the liver with the left hand, then you come up, bring his hands down, come upstairs with the right hand and drop him again. And so he's punching him, he's dropping it, he's hitting him, he's going after him, and Moore is just hanging on. Moore looks exhausted. It's two minutes into the first round. Moore looks like he's fought 50 rounds. You know, his hair is all mussed up. He's breathing heavy. His eyes are glassy. He's holding on to him. He's getting near the ropes. You know, he's trying to get the referee to let him clinch longer. And Durrell's hitting him. And Durrell hits him a third time, another good shot. And he goes, not a third time, but he hits him again. And Moore goes down. The interesting thing about this, of course, was Sharkey ruled that the the um, third one was a slip. It wasn't a slip, but Moore still manages to beat the count, get up, and he hangs on. He hangs on to the end of the round. He doesn't know where he is at the end of the round. You know, uh, Kearns gets him back in the corner, puts ice on him, puts ice on his testicles. You know, pulls the trunks out to let him breathe. You know, it's putting water on him, massaging the back of his neck. He knows all the tricks of the trade. He breaks off a capsule of ammonia, which you're not supposed to use, smelling salts. And, he, he, you know, he had to do it around the knees because if you put it up here, you're going to fry his brain. And he gets more to, you know, to wake up and, and try to get back in the fight. And he's saying to Archie, that was the first round, but it's gone. It's in the history. It's in the history books. You can't do anything about that. You got to come out now. You got you to gotta play for time until your head clears. So Moore comes out and he's jabbing. He had a longer reach, he jab, a heavy jab. He's hitting uh, Durrell, and he staggers Durrell a couple times with the right hand. And he's hanging in there. He's, he's rallying in this round. I don't think he's winning the round, but he's, he's winning in the sense that he's not getting knocked down again. He's not getting knocked out. And comes out for the third round, and Durrell goes after him like crazy again and starts throwing tremendous left hooks, right hooks. And Morris taking them, but he's, he's hanging on. Durrell's now missing a lot more than he's landing. And the reason for that is he's not he's not measuring his shots. He's just fighting like you would in a schoolyard, not doing it professionally. He let the moment get to him. And he continues this on. You get to the fourth round, and he's coming full tilt at at um, at Moore, trying to put Moore away. And he's pounding him to the body and pound. And Moore looks exhausted. I mean, Moore is avoiding and blocking a lot of the shots. And using all his experience, you know, in, in in at that point in his 25 years of boxing, but it's still, you know, it's still a fight that Durrell can easily win and probably should have won already. Because if you would go by the rules of today, which they didn't, three knockdowns, the fight would have ended in the first round. We get to the fifth round. Durrell connects again with a tremendous right hand, drills him on the chin, and Moore goes down. And when he, there's a great picture of it where Moore is lying with his arms spread out, and you think, this is it. He, you know, he's done. Somehow, he gets up at nine, he beats the count, he lasts the round. Now, the round ends, and they go back to the corners, but Durrell is as exhausted as Archie Moore, because he's fought 15 rounds in the space of five, which is what Thomas Hearns did against Marvin Hagler and their three-round war. And Durrell wasn't pacing himself. So from the sixth round on, Morris coming back, landing that long jab over and over, coming over with right hands and staggering Durrell. And he's hitting him to the body. He's hitting him to the head. And whenever Durrell 
you know, lands a good shot and then walks in close, he smothers him. And he's trying to keep Darrell on the end of his left jab, which he's able to do successfully. As the fight wears on, he then drops Darrell, which people couldn't believe. But Darrell hadn't trained the way a fighter would train today. He wasn't a well-trained fighter. He was tiring and he was arm-weary because he'd spent his load already. He tried to take the men out early and he wasn't able to do it. So, you know, Darrell goes down and, and in the end, Moore ends up knocking him down four times. And Darrell's hanging in there. But when you watch the fight, Darrell can't focus his eyes. He, he looks cross-eyed almost at times. He's bleeding badly from his nose, from his mouth. And Darrell's, he's trying to suck air. He spent all his, his, um, uh, resources and his win trying to take uh, more out early. And he thought, I, and I, I'm pretty sure when you watch the fight, that was his game plan. That was the way Darrell fought. I'm going to go out in the first couple rounds and just blast him out. That's what I do. And if I can't do it, then so be it, but I'll go out in my shield. And, and you know, from the fifth and sixth round on, sixth round on, excuse me, uh, more is chopping him down, hitting him to the liver constantly, left hooks to the liver, uh, Jabs to the solar plexus, right hands to the chin, hits him in the throat, hits him in the shoulders to hurt his arms, make his arms heavy. And, you know, Darrell's having a tough time hanging in there. And people are watching this and they're thinking, this would be horrible. You know, how can this happen? How, how could a guy dominate a guy like that, you know, and drop him four times and, and still lose the fight? I mean, it, it was voted the fight of the year by Ring Magazine. Uh, the sports event of the year in Canada. And uh, it, it was an incredible war from beginning to end. Uh, by the way, Moore has a record of 199 wins, 145 knockouts, the most in boxing history with 26 losses and, uh, and eight draws. And, you know, this was so close, so close for Durrell. He could taste a title. Now, prior to this fight in, in 1955, uh, more challenged the great Rocky Marciano for the world uh, heavyweight title. And he dropped him. He dropped him in the second round, but then Marciano came back and stopped him. Moore always claimed the referee interfered because the referee, you know, when Moore got up or Marciano got up, he still waved more to the corner and still gave him more time to recover. He said, if he had let me get on him right away, I could have stopped him. We'll never know that because Moore came back or Marciano came back and he just overwhelmed Moore who, you know, by then was exhausted. He also fought Floyd Patterson a year later, 1956. And it's a strange fight. Patterson knocks Moore out in, in the fifth round with a, a hook to the solar plexus. I'm always wondering if, and Moore fell awkwardly. I was always wondering if there was some mob influence in that fight. I know Customato always badmouthed the mob, but there's instances of him I mean, he couldn't avoid it where he had to do business with the mob when it suited him. So, uh, although he despised them. So we really, you know, all we have is the film of that fight. And we know that uh, Patterson won. Moore kept on fighting. Moore, Moore um, is, by the way, is the only man to have fought Rocky Marciano and Ali. He challenged a young Ali, Cassius Clay, then and lost in four rounds. But Moore, you know, he was in his 50s at the time. And... Ali was coming up with these poems and sings, you know, this man's old enough to be my grandfather and that, but Moore was much more literate and witty uh, than Muhammad Ali. So in a, a battle of wits, Moore stood 
you know, unrivaled, not only against other fighters, but against anyone, including comics. Uh, Moore, when his career ended, became known for training George Foreman. And he trained Foreman in both uh, Foreman's first incarnation and when Foreman came back. He trained him for a while when he had his comeback, but Archie was starting to suffer a bit from, from dementia at that point. So he was replaced by my surrogate father, Angelo Dundee. But he was the one who guided George Foreman to the knockout win over Joe Frazier. And, you know, he was telling George Foreman that Frazier's a smaller man. He can't fight backing up. He's got to get inside your arms. Don't let him get inside your arms. If he bowls his way in, just push him back. Keep your left hand in his face the whole time. Give yourself room and keep throwing the long right hands. He showed George how to hide his right uppercut and how to hide his right hand. And Moore was uh, a great teacher. He also trained uh, heavyweight James Tellis and took him from an average fighter to a very good heavyweight. Uh, Moore was a man who was universally loved in the sport of boxing. Uh, he was loved by many people. Um, other fighters liked him. He trained Ali for a short time, but Ali left his training camp. I don't think it was personal. I mean, they were always good friends, even after they fought. It's just that Moore wanted to teach Muhammad discipline. And Muhammad came from a middle-class black family. So when he got to Moore's training camp, Moore wanted him to, to wash dishes, scrub the floor, clean the toilets. And Muhammad said, I didn't do that when I was growing up. My mother did that. And I ain't doing it now that I'm the Olympic gold medalist. And so he went and he switched to, to, um, to Angelo Dundee. So he kept fighting. He fought until 1960. He was the lightweight champion, but then the uh, World Boxing or the National Boxing Association withdrew their recognition of him because he hadn't defended the title in a while. And the reason he hadn't was because the, uh, the offers he was getting were terrible. It was for so little money. And so, but Ring Magazine, New York, New York State Athletic Commission recognized him until they then withdrew their recognition of him in, in, in 1962. He's, he's an undoubtedly fascinating character. And uh, I just wanted to make sure I made some notes here. I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss uh, anything going on uh, with either fighter. With regards to Yvonne Durrell, um, you know, in 1959, just after six months after he fought him, there was a 40 foot tidal wave in Bay St. Como that killed 40, you know, 30, 40, 50 people. And these were all his friends. So he went home there to help out, to raise money. And uh, he, he challenged Archie Moore again. He was knocked out in three rounds. And then uh, he made the unfortunate mistake of challenging uh, George Chevallo for the Canadian Heavyweight Championship. And he lost a 12-round decision, but he took a beating. After that, he left boxing, and he came back a couple years later, but he worked mostly as a wrestler in Western Canada with Stu Hart's uh, Stampede Wrestling. Stu Hart also had Brett, the hitman Hart, his son, Owen Hart. And Durrell was sort of um, uh, an anomaly, an oxymoron of professional boxing, because he was a really soft-spoken, gentle person, and this is a brutal sport. But... In the 1970s, he had a bar in Bayside Como. And uh, when I did stand-up, I performed out in Bayside Como and other places in New Brunswick. And most people wouldn't know this, even in Canada. But New Brunswick's a mob town. And the bars in, every, in all those places out there, gambling joints, bars, uh, 
clubs. They're all mob owned. So he opened a, a, a bar. He was being threatened to pay a mob tax. He wouldn't pay it. Guy came in and threatened him and he shot him. He quitted it. He killed him. Uh, he got a lawyer, Frank McKenna, who later became premier of the province. That's like governor in the United States of New Brunswick. And he had him acquitted, but he, he lived the rest of his life in fear that someone would come and take his life. You know, some mob guy. Uh, he was always in touch with Archie Moore. They were great friends. They loved each other. And uh, Moore helped them out financially. Moore helped pay for for Yvonne Durrell's funeral. Uh, Durrell uh, had Parkinson's disease. He suffered a massive stroke on Christmas Day and December the 6th. And he died in the hospital in Moncton, January 6, 2007. The families, like Jay Marie Moore, the daughter who boxed of uh, Archie Moore and her sister, were also friends with the Durrell family. And they spoke often. And, and this is one of the great things about boxing, how two people could go to war like this. And as George Cheval said, boxing is the weirdest way to make friends for life because Yvonne would have problems with the mob or he'd have problems, you know, family problems, financial. And he would call Archie Moore, who was like a brother to him, and he'd say, what do I do, Archie? Tell me what to do. Please help me. And Moore did. Moore would come up to see him, would hug him, and would give him money and, would, you know, and try to help him, try to calm him down. Moore is extremely generous that way. Moore had a tremendous self-respect, but respect for other fighters. And there's a great story uh, that his daughter told me that when he was in Las Vegas once, and there was Joe Lewis left alone in a wheelchair outside of a, of a, uh, a casino. And Joe Lewis had some spittle coming down. He had a stroke. And Archie Moore was standing there, and he was furious. And he wheels him in, and he says, this man, you know, give him a room, please. And they said, oh, didn't even look up. Well, we're full up. He said, I don't care if you're full up. This is the greatest prize fighter that ever walked the face of the earth. This is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, Joe Lewis. And Moore wouldn't leave until they gave him a good room and they got him medical attention. So Moore, Moore was a man who fought in the most brutal of sports but was able to walk with kings. He met many presidents, and, and everyone he met was surprised at the depth of his incredible intelligence on all issues, political, economic, the arts, social, cultural. I mean, he was just a very bright man you could see him on in the movie um uh i think it was uh huck finn huckleberry finn the disney film he appeared in episodes of batman he appeared on a lot of tv shows i also have an episode of him from uh what's my line and it's great and he's wearing you know a tuxedo and tails and a top hat and he's just the way he speaks i mean he should have been born british you would think because if he was a British citizen, he would have been knighted. And just a tremendous Renaissance figure, the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time. Gotta rate him as one of the top two, three fighters of all time and one of the top athletes ever to have lived. All the people that came to see his fights, all the press that he got, all the ballyhoo, that was completely him. He did that himself out of his own sweat. Here's a guy that grew up with nothing in a bitterly racist country and ended up making something of himself, not only something of himself, but became a, a household word, word, excuse me, all over the world. So you could go to any country in South America, you could go to uh, any country in Europe, Scandinavia, anywhere. 
and they would know the name of the old mongoose. Archie Moore held the worldwide heavyweight title longer than anyone else ever held it, had the most knockouts in boxing history, and has to be rated, as I say, one of the top, not only fighters of all time, but top gentlemen and top renaissance men of all time. I'm a huge jazz fan, and I worked at a jazz station here in Toronto, but my knowledge is nothing compared to what Archie Moore knew. He was just an incredible person. If you get a chance, and thank God, you can go to YouTube. You could watch the Durrell fight, which is a great fight to watch, but also watch his fight you know, with Rocky Marciano. Watch his other fights with Joey Maxson. He fought a big Cuban heavyweight, Nino Valdez, and beat him easily. And after the fight, I've never seen this before, Valdez was crying. He was crying. It wasn't fair. And, you know, Archie Moore said, it's boxing. There's no crying in boxing. What are you doing? You know, if you don't think it's fair, we'll fight again. I'll whoop you again. So Archie Moore, uh, you know, lived a long life. And as I said, uh, Darrell died in 207. Um, I'm just going through my papers here that Moore, Moore lived to be uh, a ripe old age. And um, I'm trying to find here when, when, uh, when Moore passed away. It uh, wasn't too long ago. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Archie Moore was one of the all-time greats, along with Durrell. Their fight made history. And uh, if you get a chance to watch it, watch it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode of of, um, of Ring Talk. Uh, sorry to be a bit scattered all over the place, but uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, if you're enjoying it, let me know. You know, email me at louisen, L-O-U-E-I-S-E-N at rogers.com. Post comments here. You can post comments after the show. And you can also make suggestions about fights you might want to have me uh, talk about um, uh, after. So thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. Please go out and learn about Archie Moore. Uh, watch the TV shows. You can get all the TV shows and movies he was in on YouTube. So, and his fights. He's just a sublime fighter. He's very patient. Patience is the hardest virtue for any fighter to master. And no one had it in abundance more than Archie Moore. He could outweigh the fighter. And he knew what he had to do. He had a firm game plan. Tremendous chin. But he had that, that will of steel to refuse to lose. He, he did not let the racism that was endemic to his times defeat him. He didn't let Yvonne Durrell defeat him. He didn't let anything defeat him. He retired as the unbeaten for the World Light Heavyweight title. And he retired with his brains and his money intact. And there's not many people in any profession that can make that claim. Thank you for watching this episode of Ring Talk. I'm Lou Eisen. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.